The text for the sermon is taken from the epistle. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother in need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, uh, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us love not in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Last week, we saw that the New Testament, indeed the whole Bible, uh, is a portable library whose purpose is to reveal Jesus to his church and to the whole wide world. We know that his narrative uh, is the narrative of the God who is God. And as I have said before uh, and said last week, his life story enfolds your life story. In fact, it enfolds every single human being who has ever existed or ever will exist, and that enfolding bestows ultimate meaning upon each person as well as bestowing ultimate meaning upon the whole creation. The way we, uh, uh, the, the way we have become entwined uh, in his story is through the grace of holy baptism. But in addition to our being folded into his life story, baptism also infuses into us the supernatural grace and the gifts, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love that are necessary and enable us to appropriate his life so that we may really and truly make his life our life. Whether people like it or not, it is completely impossible to be disentangled uh, to or disentangle one's narrative from the narrative of Jesus Christ. The Anglo-Catholic rejoices in this entanglement because uh, she knows that she has been grafted into uh, the perfected, healed human nature of our Lord and infused with heavenly virtues. She has been regenerated and made God's offspring. Because our biographies have been assumed into Jesus' biography, we are thus responsible and equipped to appropriate his virtues and to transform our many stories into one great love story that we offer up to the Father to the, through the Son by the grace of the Holy Ghost. It is because all of that is true it is because all of that is true that St. John, the beloved disciple, writes to his little parishes that are scattered throughout Asia Minor so emphatically, decisively, so utterly black and white. Marvel not, brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. How is it that the world hates us? We have to remember that there are key words in the New Testament frequently used, in particular in John and St. Paul as well, words that are the very same word uh, that's used with different meanings, sometimes very negative, sometimes po uh, positively. Knowing the life story of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, is indispensable in following Jesus and grasping what the beloved disciple means when he uses words like flesh or the world. Uh, when we treat the world, the material world, the values of this world, when we treat all of that structure uh, as though it has a life of its own apart from God, we give our hearts to things that are in and of themselves brief, contingent, and passing away. At the same time, St. John tells us, so God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so are, there are different ways in loving things. The world can be good, it can be evil, same thing with flesh. But God became flesh. We are the children of God, and it is our destiny to love all of creation and also beginning with one another, to love one another, to love all of creation back to life. When we do that, when we habitually love one another, we are making Jesus' narrative our narrative. That requires intentional action and deliberation on our part to do that. And so the world, nat naturally, the world that is passing away, the world that does not acknowledge God, uh, that world is going to hate Jesus and hate you for that. But looming larger than any hatred, looming larger than any darkness, is the divine love that God has shed abroad in your hearts by the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us in baptism. Let me say just a word about the word love, which is, a, is fascinating in particular in John's use of the word in, uh, in, the, in his gospel, but also in the epistles. The word that John is using here is agape, one that you're familiar with, or it's some form of agape. Uh, it's used, because I counted this, it's used 52 times, that word or a derivation of that word is used 52 times in the little Johns, the little epistles. Uh, that happens to be one-fifth of the occurrences of that word in the New Testament. One-fifth. But John, the little Johns are not one-fifth of the text. The little Johns are actually one-fiftieth of the text. So in one-fiftieth of the text, we have one-fifth of the usage of this word of agape. Is it any wonder that John is known traditionally as the disciple of love, the beloved disciple. The word is Greek word, classical Greek word that is, is colorless and, and uh, uh, pretty banal in expression. But Holy Mother Church took this word and infused it with her narrative and gave it an intense, radical, and quite specific meaning. Agape is the church's culture. It is her milieu. 
It is the way she is in the world. And it is our destiny as Christians. Agape love is the gratuitous. It is not a responsive love. All of our loves are responsive. We're either we're responding to something uh, when we love uh, another person or when we uh, love some other some object. God's love is not responsive. God's love is God's character, God's being in action. It is no mere attribute of God. Uh, God does not need love. Uh, love is love because that's the way God is. That is the way God is in himself, in his own interior life in the Trinity and in the world. Not only is John called the, uh, say another word about John, not only is he the apostle of love, but he's also referred to as St. John the divine. That word divine means theologian. Translated in our day, it means St. John the theologian. Uh, in, in, in old days, uh, the uh, uh, theology was frequently called a body of divinity. John was a bearer of tradition. Uh, our Blessed Virgin Mary was the Theotokos, the bearer of God, but John and the other apostles were bearers of tradition, bearers of the tradition of the word made flesh. And John, so that John's emphasis on love is not something that he discovered or made up of, of, of himself. He, he is delivering to us exactly what uh, the teaching and the example of Jesus himself was. I want to say something here, too. Uh, I want to understand the text of Scripture as you do. Uh, and, and communicate, uh, communicate it well. Uh, but what strikes me more and more uh, over, over the years, and, and I'm not gloomy or pessimistic as you all know, but uh, what strikes me is just how different these Christians are and how different these texts are from us and from the church uh, today. Uh, I, I want to understand these, these little parishes that are scattered out through Asia Minor and why John is writing what he's writing. And the conclusion that I come to over and over again, sadly, is that we, are, we have wandered far, far away from home base. My worry is that we're so removed in time that, that we are just simply out of touch with the existential reality that these people live with all the time. They lived with horrors that we celebrate. Uh, we use the word sacrifice uh, in church and, and in secular world uh, frequently, but they knew what sacrifice was. When they, when, when they refer to sacrifice in the New Testament and in the early liturgies of the church, they knew what they were talking about. They saw sacrifices on a daily basis frequently in these cities. They heard the sacrifice, the bellowing of an animal who was being slaughtered. They smelled the sacrifice, the burning of the flesh. Sacrifice was not a beautiful uh, idea to them. It becomes transfigured in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and in our calling to sacrifice ourselves. But it begins with, and it still is, a death to all that is but God. In our day, not only that, 
our liturgies, our scriptures have been translated and revised again and again and again, plucked, parboiled, and rendered completely inoffensive, vapid, cliched, ugly. What could be a doxological shock, a liturgical slap in the face that might waken us from our slumber, is a half-hearted, poorly written, badly delivered piece of prose dedicated to navel-gazing or the celebration of American personal choice. Because that's our culture. It's all very bourgeois. It's very bourgeois for me to say it's bourgeois, isn't it? As well, I admit. We ought to be scandalized by the life that Jesus expects from us. After all, the initiatory rite of the Catholic Church, holy baptism, is a funeral for an infant, isn't it? As horrid as that is, that's what it is, followed by a new birth. So how do we appropriate this? We have to know the reality. We have to be in touch with that. And then it requires our intentional appropriation of the gifts of God that have been bestowed upon us by being attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible to God and to one another. We bow to one another at the altar. It's liturgical talk for thank you, but also it's liturgical talk for I respect you. The thoroughfare senses you with incense. Uh, the scent the fragrance that is strictly associated in the Old Testament and the New Testament with sacrifice to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the thoroughfare comes out and he senses you and he bows to you and you respond by bowing to him and you're acknowledging with that body language that you belong to Jesus and he belongs to Jesus and that we are offering ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to be one living sacrifice that goes up into the smoke of incense before the throne of grace. That's what it means. Mingled with that is the odor of sanctity, of word and flesh, of earth and altar, of matter and spirit. And your role in all of this, which by the way, it is a fact that only you can play your role involves your participation in ultimate reality. In light of that, reality, which is what I've been talking about, that is ultimate reality, we realize that we can either work against reality or we can work with reality. Much better to work with reality. Now I want to apply what I've just said quickly to what John is saying here, one piece that John is talking about. He's very, he's severe in this. Whosoever hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his vows of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? John is certainly reporting an actual event in which Christians in these parishes, in one of these parishes, or more than one of these parishes, as a matter of fact, 
know that a member of their own parish family is in genuine need of goods and services necessary to life and they turn their back on him or her. In fact, John doesn't say you just see it. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses is to gaze upon, to behold. You take in. You know the situation. Furthermore, the beloved disciple says that those who turn their backs on their brother, these people he's talking about, actually possess more of those goods necessary to life than they personally need. And to top it off, John accuses those who have turned their backs on their siblings of consciously and intentionally shutting down their natural feelings of compassion and sympathy. Yes, he does. That's what he's saying, that you intentionally, consciously and intentionally shut down the natural feelings of compassion that all men have in these circumstances. And we play the villain. And that is cleaned up language compared to what John is using. There are three things uh, going on here. And this has to do with desire, good and bad. So listen to this. First of all, there's the desire of those who turn their backs on their brother who is in need. What kind of desire provokes one Christian to ignore the needs of another Christian when it is within their power to do something about it? Secondly, it was necessary for the Christians who turned their backs on their brother in order to successfully turn their backs on their brother to resist and eventually to shut down their interior feelings of compassion for the needy brother. That's amazing, isn't it? Something we all know. Thirdly, there is the action itself the actualization of that desire. So what kind of desire leads a Christian to such disordered behavior? What kind of desire is powerful enough to bring a Christian to ignore and shut down his own natural feelings uh, as well as his infused supernatural feelings of compassion? I say natural because Jesus himself is very clear that universally men and women in other experiences who are not believers experience genuine compassion Some are in, in a similar situation. But John is addressing baptized people, baptized men and women who have been infused with the heavenly virtues and who have been grafted into the body of Christ, whose bodies have become temples of flesh for God Almighty. And they are the ones who concretely turn their back on their brother who is in need. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How does God dwell in us? Well, I'm going to stop there, because I want you to come back next week and hear the rest of the story. We will continue to explore the meaning and the function of human desire and will, and as we explore human desire, we will come to see why the sixth ecumenical council, 
was so deliberate, so like John, black and white, on their insistence that the incarnation, uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, his death and resurrection, possessed and healed the faculties of human willing and human desiring. Beloved, now are we the children of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.